So reading that book made me think, well, why can't we do this as Christians? And I, was, I don't want to be a black Malcolm X Christian, but I just thought, why can't Christianity deal with issues of race and racism? Why can't it be a political force for good? Why can it not speak truth to power? Why are we campaigning? Why are we out on the streets doing this? Hello and welcome to the Together podcast, a conversation about faith, justice and how to change the world. I'm Dan and today I'm joined by Kat and Chris. How are you doing guys? Amazing. Yeah, doing well, thanks. Welcome back. Thank you. How much did you miss me on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being very much and 10 being very, very much? How about a 7? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll go for a 15. Oh, nice. Wow. Nice, guys. You flatter me. Yeah, so I've been away for uh, a few weeks on furlough. Really glad to be back with, with Chris and Kat. Um, and yeah, I've, I've missed this, really. I've missed saying that intro section. Um, Kat, you did a good job standing in, but it wasn't quite up to the standard that I expect. But well, I think we should just let the listeners decide. <laughs> we'll have a vote. No. He's, he's done the I'm going to do a poll. <laughs> oh, no, don't do a poll. <laughs> that I'm will not be good for my self-esteem. <laughs> okay, let's do it. No, I have confidence. Let's do it. Dan or Kat? I do think it's a bit of bias because Kat controls the socials. So I feel like yeah. Jeremy yeah. people will want to be nice to Kat. Yeah, exactly. and also no, I have like pressure. 10 Instagram accounts that I can vote on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I might, I might just start 100 fake Instagram accounts just to skew things. <laughs> oh, Dan has 100,000 followers now. Oh, I wonder why. <laughs> Great, well, let's get straight to it. On today's show, we'll be hearing from academic and broadcaster Robert Beckford. We spoke to him back in February at the Justice Conference about fighting racism building community and creatively addressing injustice. So with all that's going on in the world at the moment, and in particular with the Black Lives Matter movement, this conversation couldn't be any more relevant and we're excited to share it with you. But first, as always, it's time for Kat's Questions. Yes, I am so excited. Um, So if you're listening and you submitted your question on um, our Insta story last night, thank you very much. Makes me very happy. Very happy. (laughs) So today's question is from our listener, Susie. Um, This is a great, this is like a whole new segment. Um, (laughs) So, okay, so this is, this is not a serious question, um, but it just made me laugh. You say that as though all of, all of the previous (laughs) ones have been. They've all been like deeply theological, really well taken questions. This one isn't serious, right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I feel like the others were a lot more realistic, but from like last week, we didn't have a very realistic question and today is the same. So um, this is a would you rather. So would you rather fight 10 duck-sized horses or Mm. one horse-sized duck? Um... (laughs) <laughs> this, is a, this is a classic one and I I feel like I change my mind as time goes on you know horses are quite scary really reality but why are they the size of a duck I mean that's the thing like ducks aren't tiny though ducks are still kind of sizable and 10 of them that's a lot that's like you know that scene in Jurassic Park where he's like running away from the velociraptors that's I've never seen that film you know visual I'm getting haven't you no 
Oh, wow. Maybe we should make a new segment called Cat Watchers. <laughs> it would just be the audio of you just watching a film. <laughs> Why are the episodes 10 hours long? <laughs> so I've, I've heard this one before and, and given it a lot of thought. Um, and I'm stuck in two camps. One, if I'm fearing for my life, I would rather fight 10 um, duck-sized horses because I feel like I could kick them away quite easily because they're smaller. Um, but I'm more excited by the potential of, of taming and riding a horse-sized duck, just saddling it up. Um, and then everyone's like, oh, there's Dan. Yeah, he's the guy with, who rides the horse-sized duck. But I assume that it's, it's a wild horse-sized duck. And so there would, there would be the question of whether I could tame it in a fight like get it in a headlock until it just I mean, calms down yeah because i mean that question is like can you even tame a normal horse like <laughs> i feel like you've made quite a jump there <laughs> yeah but i feel like horses are a lot easier to tame they're a lot nicer than a duck, than a duck. yeah because ducks go at you with their feathers go and things with your, with their feathers. they do like, like they always try and snap at you and i'm just not into ducks think... i'm going for horses all, all year round yeah, I'll take the duck-sized horses. I think duck, I do think you're right. I remember years ago watching a video about evil ducks, um, and it's scarred me and stayed with me ever since. And so the idea of facing a giant one that does kind of terrify me a bit. Yeah, they're horrible, especially if they've just laid eggs and they're protecting them, and you don't know about it, and so they like just come at you. I'm just not a fan of ducks. I'm sorry. You're introducing more variables there because obviously that changes. The perspective of things, whether it's, it's they're looking after. Day. But you have to think, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You have to think beyond the the question. You know, you you need to actually think about it a bit more. Because horses are great. You just give them some carrots, and then they're your friends. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> what about but with the with the giant one? You could uh, just throw it a piece of bread, throw a loaf of bread at it. Yeah, but I feel like they'll just get hungry again. Those big ducks. <laughs> they're always just eating. Was um, I might be getting this completely wrong, but is, is it a thing where um, if you give rice to birds, they explode? Have you heard I've that heard one? I've heard this multiple times, and is, I've never what? seen it happen. I've never tried because I. You know, so if you I just if you give if you give this horse sized duck a risotto or something, <laughs> then it it might just like a fresh like, one. It might become an easier. <laughs> be messy, but it might just explode because of the rice quantity. Yeah, but can you imagine the mess having to like clear that up? Yeah, yeah. Just feathers everywhere. Yeah, but then you've got a lot of duck pancakes that you could. Uh... Gosh, Dan. Let's move on. <laughs> Great, Cat. Thank you for that question and for the disclaimer that it's not a serious one. Uh, we're really looking forward to the next episode when we go back to serious Cat's questions. Um, so if you're listening at home and you want to submit your own question, then head to at we are Fund on Instagram and leave us a message. And I'm sure Kat in a, in a week or so's time will be putting a, a story out there to ask for more of your questions. So now shifting gears, it's time to hear Chris's conversation with Robert Beckford. My name is Robert Beckford. I'm an academic and broadcaster based in the city of Birmingham. Awesome. So there's a lot you've done. Like I've grown up seeing you on my TV screen, uh, mostly talking about Christianity, talking about race, how they all intersect together. 
I saw before that you spoke a bit about uh, how reading Malcolm X's autobiography kind of changed the trajectory of your thinking and your theology. Can you expand a bit on that? Yeah, I, best, I guess the best way to talk about it is to go back to the age of 14. When I was 14, two things were influencing my life. There was the church and there was Rastafari. And I mm. couldn't work out a way of bringing the two together. And there mm. was a crisis because the church was concerned with love of God, serving the community, but waiting for the life to come, the pie in the sky. Yeah. Whereas Rastafari provided me with a sense of blackness, a sense of political engagement, and a sense that we were on a journey before we got to the pie in the sky. You know, what they call in North America, the meat on the plate while we wait. Mm. And so what I wanted to do was try and find a way in which I could combine these two traditions, the best of the black church, Church with the best of Rastafari to produce what I ended up developing as a PhD student, which I called um, a political theology, but I called it dread theology, mm. using the idea of dread as freedom, upliftment, empowerment, and intersecting that with Jesus to make Jesus dread. So, you know, my yeah. first book was called Jesus is Dread, which yeah. is an attempt to bring these two together. I did it because I wanted to make a difference. I didn't want to be a Christian who went to church did not engage with the world outside, did not engage with the big political questions facing working class, working poor communities. Mm. And we were just talking off air about how the black church predominantly seems to kind of have to navigate, has to by, by essence of survival navigate, you know, the political system that is, that is in, but also in a way where it's not necessarily interacting with it. It's more like reacting to it. That's right. I mean, a good way to think about this is to think of the black church as a welfare institution. Mm. It basically looks after the community. I'm, I'm, churches I go to, I go to two black churches up in Birmingham. They do everything, soup kitchen, creche, looking after the elderly, um, provision for young people, mm. everything and everything that needs to be done in the community. Listen, even immigration support, yeah. everything and everything that needs to be done in the community to empower people. But welfare is fundamentally different from social justice. Mm. Social justice is where you're not just putting a plaster over the crack, you're dealing with the causes of the problem. Yeah. So if you take something like gang crime and gun violence, then rather than just finding a refuge for young people or supporting young people to get out of gangs, you're instead dealing with the root causes, impoverishment, yeah. spiritual impoverishment, financial impoverishment, lack of education, lack of resources from the government. So I've always lived that intersection. On the one hand, being a member of a black church community that does the welfare work, yeah. but as a theologian, being committed, and an activist, being committed to dealing with the causes of the distress, the yeah. structural causes, the way that government works, the way that society works to marginalise some people. Yeah, and I know you're quite a champion of liberation theology. Is that where you found kind of that focus on the system? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm an old dude now, but when I was younger, I mean, go back to the... Everything happened to me when I was 14. When I was 14, <laughs> I was 14, I dealt with that crisis, you know, the tension between the church and Rastafari. But I read the autobiography of Malcolm X, and that completely changed my life because mm. Malcolm... There's three Malcolms in the book. There's Malcolm, the hustler. Then there's Malcolm, the minister. And then there's Malcolm, the Pan-Africanist. And yeah. basically, Malcolm X goes on this journey. For, and, and what he does brilliantly is combine religion with politics, with identity, mm. so that religion becomes a force for changing the world, you know, yeah. particularly the black world that he was in the 1960s. And not just thinking in terms of the US, but thinking globally as well. I mean, you know, most people won't realise unless you read the book mm. about his life story. They changes his view on a lot of things towards yeah. the end of his life much more inclusive and trying to bring people together to fight injustice, making racism a human rights issue. So reading that book 
made me think, well, why can't we do this as Christians? Yeah. I don't want to be a black Malcolm X Christian, but yeah. what, why can't Christianity deal with issues of race and racism? Why can't it be a political force for good? Why can it not speak truth to power? Why aren't we campaigning? Why aren't we out on the streets doing this? Why aren't we challenging the way the injustices within our local community? So I set myself the task of at least providing the resources for people to think about these things. And mm. what I mean by that was, you know, I went to university, um, I studied, I, I gained a PhD, wrote books, but that wasn't enough. Yeah. You know, it's a cheeky story by Benjamin Zephaniah where he says, the best way to hide information, you know, from, his, his mother used to hide information and money from his dad by putting it in a book. <laughs> she knew his dad wasn't going to go to the bookshelves, you know. And, and one of the things, there's a certain truth within that, that in this multimedia, multi, you know, social platform age, you have to find different ways in which you can get your ideas out there. Yeah. So I started writing books, but then realized nobody was going to read them. So that's when I got into filmmaking and used yeah. filmmaking as a way of exploring ideas and liberation theology. Yeah, I, I want to touch on, the, on that in a, a bit, in just a moment. But just hearing you talk, the theology and political kind of ideologies that you hold, they seem to be quite fluid in a time and space or maybe in a place of the Western church where that seems to be a lot of resistance to that. How, are you, how have you found that challenge of, you know, of living a theology that doesn't necessarily fit what's being said on most pulpits? Uh, to be honest, it's a lonely journey. And it's a lonely journey in terms of being a you know, working-class African-Caribbean man who is committed to social justice from the context of the church. There just mm. aren't many people who are interested in this kind of thing. Mm. The way that I navigate it is by reminding myself of two things. One, the biblical tradition is political. You know, in the Old Testament, God declares people kings, and kings yeah. had to rule. They had to engage in issues of state, the polis. So the Bible is political. God is a God who intervenes in human history to transform the lives of oppressed people. That's the mm. Exodus narrative. It's constantly telling Israel in the Old Testament Testament to remember that they were once enslaved in Egypt and therefore they need to remember that they have to resist bondage. The whole of the biblical New Testament tradition is about a God becoming flesh to save and deliver people holistically, yeah. not just spiritually, but materially, politically, economically to transform this world. So the first thing I remind myself is I'm on pretty solid ground theologically. This is the way mm. the, 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 you know, the, the Bible works. The second thing is to recognize that for 500 years, African people, African people in the Caribbean, were subject to what I call colonial Christianity. Mm. Colonial Christianity was the missionary theology that the English missionaries, in the Caribbean case, because my family's from Jamaica, brought mm. with them. And colonial Christianity colluded with the racism and racial terror of enslavement. Yeah. It basically was on the side of the slave masters against the enslaved. Mm. And colonial Christianity, although it fit at slavery, ended in 1838, 1834, continues in the black church tradition in two ways. Because colonial Christianity said to enslave people, to keep, keep them enslaved, yeah. said two things. One, you can't change the world. Christianity isn't about changing your lot. It's about doing the best that you can in the difficult circumstances mm. that you have. Survival theology is what they call this. Mm. The second thing it said was, don't do the thinking, we'll do the thinking for you. Yeah. And I often say to my students, look, 400 years later, black churches still don't do political engagement, and secondly, don't do enough theological education mm. and training. 
that demonstrates to me that colonial Christianity continues. Yes. So I hold those two things in tension. The biblical tradition is deeply political, encourages people to engage with the injustice within this world. But I recognize that black church traditions in particular are limited because they have not, and I say this in my last book, they have not exercised themselves from the demonic influence mm. of colonial Christianity because I see it as a demonic force mm. which says to people, don't think and you can't change the world. Yeah. What are the practical steps then that churches can do to rid themselves of that? Oh, man, we can talk about that all day. Look, the best <laughs> thing is to read all my books, all available at the best bookstores, watch all the films. Yes. Oh, listen, I've got a gospel album out, you know. So yeah, like, yeah. Blah, 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 the gospel. Blah, blah. I'd just say, if you look, you can either read the book, watch films, or listen to the music. Um, so there are three key things. I think, firstly, there has to be some hardcore repentance over racialized racialized mm. injustice i mean we're, we're talking about churches engaging in politics but within my context and the work you know university work work with churches a fundamental issue is still race and racism mm. and i think that english churches have not fully repented from that past mm. you know people feel remorseful they feel upset about it you know archbishop of canterbury just a couple of weeks ago yeah. saying you know i'm that they feel really bad about the wind rushing Real hardcore repentance leads to change. Yeah. And I don't think there's been that kind of repentance because there, are, there aren't the fruit of the repentance. Mm. So the second thing is I think there need to be the kind of fruit of the repentance, which is building justice into the fabric of the church in terms of its structures, yeah. whether it does business, who it appoints, who it has on stage, you know, because often Sunday morning worship is like apartheid. It's apartheid in terms of black church, white church, Asian church. Mm. It's apartheid in terms of the power dynamics of many churches. It's either the men doing the stuff and the women in the congregation or the black folks get consigned to doing the singing, yeah. not the preaching, not the leading, not the management. So we've got to radically rework how the church looks so that it represents what the kingdom of God yeah. is about. Then I think we're in a position to really, really engage with the world outside and present an alternative way of being. So I often talk about those three stages, real yeah. hardcore repentance, real vision of how we do church in terms of how it looks, mm. how it presents to the world, and then engaging prophetically. What I mean by prophetically is, look, you know, there's two kinds of prophecy in the Hebrew Bible. There's prophecy which is saying, this is what's going to happen in the future. Mm. And, you know, uh, you know, African churches, my African brethren like that one because, you know, oh, they could say next week, <laughs> yeah. your prayers will be answered and God will make up, you know. But there's the bulk of prophecy, which was about saying this is what God demands here and now. Yeah. And that's speaking truth to power. The 8th century prophets, 800 years before Jesus, um, Micah, Amos, Hosea, Jeremiah, that's what they did. Mm. Their prophecy was engaging with the injustice that they saw before them. So yeah. the third stage is about building a prophetic imagination and a prophetic church praxis or action which engages with the structural discrimination in our society in Britain and across the world. Amazing. It's exciting. It's exciting to think of that becoming a reality. And, you know, you mentioned about uh, Justin Welby's uh, statement the other week. Uh, is that for you a sign that things are moving in the right direction or is it something more surface? I think it shows that they've regressed because I'm old enough to remember in 2007 when the previous Archbishop of Canterbury, Ron Williams, said exactly the same thing. Mm. So we've had uh, 13 years and no change. Yeah. And I think that's because of the three things I've mentioned. 
One, there hasn't been serious repentance. Mm. The Anglican Church doesn't have a day when it remembers its collusion with racial terror. Look, the Anglican Church had a plantation in Barbados. Mm. They owned slaves, Mm. you know. They took money from slave owners who committed acts of genocide and built church buildings. Yeah. People worshipping in churches, which was built on killing African people. I mean, how how do you you go to church Sunday morning and sit in that church and say, bless me, Jesus, and recognise that the bricks were paid for yeah. with the blood and suffering the rape and torture to murder of Africans I mean I, 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 that beggars belief to me so I don't see that as progress I think it's regress mm. if they really want to address the issue I think there's you memorialise the fact that you are turning away from this past yeah. you radically reconstruct the church culture to be inclusive look Anglican priests spend more time debating thing, you know, whether animals are going to be saved mm. rather than dealing with inclusion of their black and brown brothers and sisters. They, re- they really do. The, the whole thing's messed up. That's why they haven't moved on mm. in terms of theological training. There isn't the... I'm being a bit crude there. You know, they, <laughs> they probably spend some time, but an insufficient amount of time in terms of training priests to be inclusive yeah. and to have the language of justice and inclusion isn't part of theological training. Yeah. So you've got a real problem. You're training priests to be racist rather than being anti-racist. That's, that's, that's reality. Yeah, that's reality yeah. the situation. So, um, and the third thing, you can't then speak truth to power outside if you haven't got your own house in order. Yeah. And therefore, I don't see his apology, his unscripted apology as being progressive. I think it takes us back to maybe... 1975, we heard that kind of thing. 1990s, we heard that kind of thing from the church. Rowan Williams said it, uh, you know, Welby saying it now, suggesting to me that they haven't dealt with the fundamentals. And here's the thing, I'll put it out this way. I do not believe they really believe in the full humanity and equality of black people. Mm. End of story. You know, you don't continue with business as usual. You don't just talk about welcome and hospitality Mm. to deal with the church's historic complicity with racialized oppression and its continuity into the present. You don't do that just by wishing it away or yeah. praying it away. You make hardcore structural changes. And you do that if you believe that people are worth it. So for me, everything he said is regressive and does not inspire me as a, an African-Caribbean Christian. Yeah, that's a strong challenge. Nah, man, it's the truth. <laughs> the, the, the Rastas will say, I truth, Reggie. Truths are right, yeah? Well, in, in speaking truth, you know, you mentioned Wind Rush earlier. Mm. That's been a continual, ongoing scandal. Mm. Uh, and most recently, you know, the, the kind of covert deportation of, of Caribbean people. Uh, how is this happening? Why is it happening? Well, I think historically... West Indians who came here, so-called West Indians back then, the post-war years in 1948 on Empire Windrush, came as colonial citizens. They were not immigrants. Mm. They were not refugees. They were not migrants. They were colonial citizens. As colonial subjects, they had the right to move anywhere within the empire and settle within Britain. There's a 1948 Immigration Act, which basically said that you can come here and settle. So they came. They came on on ships, and those who could afford the planes came on planes, and they settled in Britain from 1948 till 1962 until there was the first legislation to restrict immigration from the Commonwealth, not just from the Caribbean, Mm. but from Asia and other parts of the the British um, Commonwealth. 
The problem was that the people who came were seen as short-term by the British government. Mm. They were not seen as being people who wanted to be here for the next 50, 60, 70 years. And during that time period, they changed the Nationality Act from the 1948 Act to 62 to other periods of time, the most recent one in the 1980s. And at every point, it marginalised the Windrush generation. Mm. You know, I mean, my parents had to update their passports and their uh, citizenship in the 1980s. I remember that to pay, pay you know, a couple hundred pounds each yeah. in order to change status. And it reminded me, that whole experience, that, you know, there's something not quite right here, that, you know, these people have never been completely included and treated respectfully. Yeah. And as we've seen, the children of Windrush, those who were un, whose documents they couldn't find because they weren't kept properly, because they weren't seen as important, are now being penalised for that. And the whole scandal, you know, is a really uh, terrible, terrible, terrible stain yeah. on um, British hospitality, immigration and the history of the Commonwealth. It's tragic. The untold story, which we're now hearing, you know, as we yeah. well be a deal with, is that there's a Christian version of Windrush. And the Christian version has two sides. One side is the white church rejecting black people. The second side of Windrush is the black church tradition and why that was formed, mm. in part, not completely, but in part as a response to the lack of hospitality, the lack of welcome, the lack of inclusion within the structures, the fabric of the church. So yeah. this tragedy will continue until we have real structural change. What I mean by that is you have to educate people in church, you yeah. have to have days of remembering, mm. you have to train your clergy differently, mm. you have to develop a new inclusive language, you mm. know, so that people get it and you have to practice faith in a way that engages with the diversity within your congregations. If you don't do that, you're just touching the surface, you know, yeah. and, um, and eventually you'll know these issues come to the fore and churches don't have the tools to deal with them. Yeah, I mean, this is a range of issues and, of course, they, they're so mm. interlocked in each other. Mm. And, you know, term, terms have been developed, you know, like being woke to things and stuff like that. Mm. What I noticed in the last general election is how wokeness became weaponized mm. and actually it became a term of oh I don't know you're just one of these woke people trying mm. to mm. trying to destroy destroy us mm. and you know how what's happening there yeah well to quote Malcolm X the media are very powerful and they will make right look wrong and wrong look right mm. and there's a tradition of the right wing right wing conservatism both America and in Britain appropriating the language of resistance and turning it into a language of oppression mm. what I mean by that is they'll take a word like woke which is meant to be about being conscious mm. um, and initially you know if we go back to the 1950s 60s when it's first used in a play on Broadway by a black playwright he's saying be awake be conscious mm. Erica Badu then in the um, late noughties uses it to stay woke mm -hmm. in order to encourage African Americans to be conscious of the political world in which they live in Black Lives Matter then 2014 use it as a hashtag um, in order to encourage African Americans to organize against police brutality nothing wrong with that mm. but the, the obviously Charles Gambino you know yeah. uses it in his song um, Red that's it you know yeah. stay woke um, and and so in order to conscientize people saying look we've, we've got to be aware of this because it's such a powerful concept the right-wing media appropriated it and made it look as if people are be, using it, appropriated it, 
what I mean by that is they took the idea mm. and turned it back at that same community to suggest that they were somehow limiting freedom of speech or mm. oppressing people. And it's happened before, you know, not just in terms of woke, but before that, the predecessor would be political correctness. Yeah. Being political correct meant not using racist language. Yeah. Now, uh, social commentators like Piers Morgan, uh, the Daily Mail newspaper will talk about political correctness as if it's a kind of an, an oppression. So, yeah. you know, I don't get it. Me asking somebody not to use derogatory language against me as a black person is somehow seen as oppressive, freedom, lack of freedom of speech. Yeah. That's kind of how crazy the right can be in normalising oppression. Yeah. You know? so, so I think wokeness is important, but it doesn't mean anything if it's not accompanied with practice yeah action in the world that actually makes the space woke how yeah. do we how do we make you know there's a book called woke church yeah. which is all about trying to restructure redesign worship liturgy language training christian education to make the church an inclusive space yeah so there's that one side of that reaction being go deeper do the work and there's the other side though in terms just like even practically do we just drop these terms and do we just say, you know what, this is causing too many problems, let's just move on? I think the concepts are useful. We've had them throughout history. You know, if we were, um, uh, if you were, you're, you're, you're a young man, you're not old like me. But listen, in my day, we talked about being dread. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that was about being aware of the, the social world in which we live in. You mm. know, my African-American friends, I, I did my first degree in North America, my African-American um, classmates, they had their own terms, yeah. you know, for what it meant to be aware of the world around you. And so we need these concepts sometimes to guide us, and they evolve over time. They never stay the same because mm. popular culture, youth culture doesn't say, stay the same. But I think fundamentally it's the action that matters. Being woke is a way of life. Mm. Being a woke church is a way of being a community that transforms each other's lives, iron sharpening iron, and transforms the world outside and is fundamentally committed to justice and inclusion. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's the biblical tradition. Yeah, great. Uh, you spoke about media. You yourself have used a range of multimedia, whether it be books, films, radio, music. What is your favourite medium to work through? Oh, that's a good question. You know what? I really enjoy the challenge of preaching. Occasionally mm. when churches ask me to preach, not always because they're not sure what they're going to get. You know? <laughs> yeah, that seems as being too safe, you know what I mean? So, so, but I enjoy it because it's the biggest challenge, especially within the African-Caribbean church tradition, black church tradition of extemporaneous preaching, yeah. where you go armed with the fullness of the spirit, awareness of the text, a lot of preparation usually, you know, yeah, yeah. people make out like, well, God woke me up this morning and gave me this. Nah, man, I spent three weeks working on this. I've done the work. I've, I've read it in Hebrew, Greek. I've, yeah. I've looked at this text in three different commentaries. I've asked mm. people about, you know, some people do the work. But I enjoy that face-to-face engagement with congregations mm. and the sheer power of being... Um, well, not I shouldn't say power. The sense of empowerment mm. one gets from being an instrument of God and communicating God's word to God's people, I really feel that is the greatest privilege. Mm. And preaching for me and teaching um, are my ministries. I'm not I'm not ordained. Teaching is my ministry. Mm. So for me, the opportunity to teach 
and speak and explore ideas, whether in the pulpit, whether teaching, that, that for me is the greatest yeah. medium. Writing, look, I come from a working class um, uh, community. I went to an inner city comprehensive school. And so writing was something I had to catch up on and develop mm. because we, you know, my school there, we were we were factory fodder. We were told that we would go and work in the factories or yeah. the call centres. We weren't necessarily encouraged to think of ourselves as university professors or or academics. So writing is something I've had to work hard and, and develop. Media work wasn't so difficult because I did drama at school. Yeah, uh, you missed maths class, you see, if you did the drama. Yeah. So I did a lot of drama. So going in front of a camera was was relatively easy. And it was a precise moment when I got involved in television that there were people involved who wanted to present a particular understanding of religion. Religion is political, religion yeah. is social. That's deep, critical question. That's gone now. That, that moment has gone. Mm. Um, so I moved on. And, you know, my last major output was an album, a gospel album. It's yeah. called the Jamaican Bible Remix. You can download it mm-hmm. um, on SoundCloud or at um, Canterbury Christchurch University Jamaican Bible Remix um, uh, website. And that is just another way in which I wanted to explore political theology, liberation theology, black theology, yeah. um, uh, through music by showing that gospel music can express these themes. Gospel music doesn't just have to be about worship. Doesn't just just have to be about overcoming trials and tribulation. It can actually engage with socio political issues from the context of scripture and from the tradition of the church. Yeah, I saw I saw an interview where you mentioned talking about you know trying to move away from selfish praise music to the politics of Jesus. Is that what you mean by that? Completely, completely. I found praise music was pop songs to Jesus that basically, after a while, weren't going nowhere for me. And I found the theological content of many of the new praise and worship songs to be fundamentally about feeling, transcendence, and emotion. No problem with that from Mm. the black church tradition, where we do that better than anybody else. But I wanted more. I wanted to explore ways in which we could talk about, in worship, what God has to say about gang violence. How can we, in worship, express our commitment and our solidarity to gender inclusion? Mm. How can we, in worship say that we are committed to social justice within the world outside? Mm. How can we, through worship and song, can we construct lyrics that help us to deal with Windrush? You yeah. know, I have a Windrush song, which is called, um, on the album, it's called Incarnation, mm. colon, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. That was what was written in Windows when yeah. my parents from the Windrush generation, generation came to us. I thought, well, why wouldn't we write a song about this? Mm. Can we write a gospel song that deals with that particular history and asks God to make sense of it for us. Yeah. So I wanted to do that in gospel music as a counterbalance, not as the complete picture, because listen, if you're doing that kind of singing all the time, it's pretty hard, it's pretty <laughs> heavy. Yeah. You know, it's like, man, it's, that's, that's like listening to DMX all day or something, you know what I mean? After a while you think, my goodness, if I listen to another track, it'll get me down, yeah. you know. Um, uh, so um, I, I see it as a counterbalance to the praise and worship, not yeah. a substitute. But, you know, it's interesting you say that. I remember watching an interview with Anderson Pack, and he was talking about Marvin Gaye and his ability to have so much political depth in what he was saying, but also make you dance, make yeah. you move. Is that what you're trying completely, to Completely, completely. It's what um, uh, Talib Kualib calls the beautiful struggle. Mm. You know, it's a African an African diasporan tradition of folding the aesthetic into ethics, the religious into ideology, the capacity to 
merge together two competing or contrasting themes and ideas and make it work as a unit, unitary whole. So we can have joy and sorrow uh, within a song. Mm. We can have joy and pain within a narrative and feel quite good about it. We can have a song that is really quite sad, but that can be lift, uplifting. We hold these things together. You know, yeah. in African philosophy, they call it diunitalism, mm. the capacity to hold these two things in tension. That's why, you know, African people sometimes you say, look, you support United? Yeah, 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 yeah. You support City? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, what are you talking about? What do you support? We hold the two in tension, bro. We love them both. You know what I mean? We, you know, so, so, so there is this capacity within African philosophical traditions to be holistic, yeah. to hold complex ideas and diverse and even competing ideas in attention and feel completely comfortable with it. In the West, they call it syncretism. Mm. In, in African traditions, we just call it adaptation, adapting to mm. the world around you and holding thing, things together. So I try to continue that tradition from my uh, West African ancestors mm. who traveled to, to the Caribbean as enslaved people who maintain that tradition in their language and in their music culture. And I'm just trying to revive it and repackage it for a whole new generation. What's interesting as you say that is it screams gospel to me. It screams being here, waiting for the kingdom to come, mm. the, living mm. out of the kingdom as it mm. comes. Mm. And that is part of our justice work. Completely, completely. I even go further. I would argue that the work of God in the world is justice. Mm. Uh, I, I um, As I've got older, I've become less focused on the church as a worshipping community and more interested in the church as an institution of justice. Mm. And I say, maybe that's just old people talk, you know, you get past 50 because you think, my goodness, what have we accomplished? What have we done? How mm. can we have an engaged with this community? How can we, where did we get lost along the way? Mm. And it's a recognition that there is, I think, within Western Christianity, a, capac- a conservatism that maintains things rather than changing things. Mm. And so in my latter life, I become much more engaged with church-based projects that are concerned with justice, changing things, whether it's around identity, whether it's around culture, whether it's around politics, but trying to institutionalise a culture of change within students I work with and church communities I work with. Awesome. Just to finish up, if there's someone listening to this and, you know, they're hearing this being inspired and saying, you know, I want to step into this work as well. And like you said earlier, the multimedia options now are so vast, like our phones do everything. How would you encourage them to maybe be as agile as you in terms of going to film, going to music, going to whatever, whatever it may be? Well, three things I would say. Firstly, if you're a graduate, come and study with me. I work in three institutions. One is the seminary, the Queen's Ecumenical Foundation in Birmingham. I also work at Birmingham City University. If you're more sociologically minded, I teach there in the Department of Sociology. So what I really encourage people to do first and foremost is study. Mm. Learn the word. Learn the great ideas that shape the world around us and do some of the thinking. Because I mentioned before, colonial Christianity is a don't think. Mm. The second thing I would say is that um, do not be determined from outside be determined from inside who god has called you to be Mm. and and i don't mean that in a glib way what i mean by that is live 
in the fullness, living in the fullness of God means, means to me having the capacity to do everything, to, mm. to, to, to not be limited by one discourse, writing, not, not one location, living in Britain, mm. but to li- really have life to the full is to give full expression to the divine creativity that resides within all of us. And that's why I do multimedia stuff, not because mm. I'm really any good at it, just because I was raised to believe that in God these things are possible. You yeah. know, uh, my mother would say, one with God is a majority. So I thought, well, look, if I'm in the majority, I can do this. Mm. You know, I can actually do it. The third thing I would say, which is really, really important, is to, is to set the bar really high for yourself in your life. Mm. Do, not be, do not settle for the mediocre. Do not settle for the average, but really push yourself to be everything that you can be in Christ and in making a difference within this world. So it's really those three things, you know, study, you know, go with what you have been, your calling, what you've been called to do, and and do not allow anybody to um, um, dissuade you, mm-hmm. um, put you off course, or, or blinker your vision. I think that's really important that you stay true to that. And the third thing is literally the sky's the limit. You know, dreaming the dreams that God has given you and putting them into practice. So I think those three things have kind of shaped me. And even now, um, you know, in my um, middle aged years, I'm still living that way. So that's why, you know, a few years ago, I thought, listen, I listen to the kids in my church playing. I I can do that. How can these little 14 year old boys be making tunes? I can do that. I'm a big man. And I just wasn't going to be limited, you know, you know. Um, And similarly, you know, in terms of looking ahead to things I want to accomplish going it's exactly the same I'm living now in the same way that I was living in 14 by living with those those three particular things it was great listening back to that interview guys what stood out to you yeah um I like when he talked about us engaging with the world prophetically and actually listening out for those injustices moments in in around us and speaking up about it and you know wherever you are you might be in a workplace you might be on a commute uh, you might be working from home on a video call and also I feel like you don't actually need to be in the presence of a black person to address racism because I've been in scenarios where you know, it's, it's only white people in the room and they'll say things that I don't think is right. So you still have the responsibility to actually speak up about it in that moment because it's actually a really good moment for you to speak up because then you would think that if there was a present of um, a person of colour, that wouldn't happen because they've already been educated outside of that environment. So yeah, I think we we need to be continuously praying and journeying with God in these times and actually just ask for that to be given to us, to just give us an ear to listen out and to know when to speak up because I think we've just been silent for too long and I feel like we've grown up thinking that it's okay when it's not and I know I think it's just our time to learn and it's not just learning from from great resources out there but actually learning the Bible and learning from God and what he gets frustrated about. Yeah, I think that links to the point I took away in that the Bible is, is political. 
it's about holistically reaching people spiritually and economically and um, and that that's really important I think there's been occasions in in church history in recent history where people say the church shouldn't be political but the Bible is political so how can we not be political I think that's really important it's it's the basis of our faith and it's the basis that we we live by and so let's look at how scripture and how the life of Jesus teaches us to engage with things that account as political I think we're doing that a lot better in even in the last you know, couple of weeks and, and months we've seen how lobbying our politicians and protesting and calling for change brings results um, and so I think it's really important to to bring that into the reality that we're in at the moment and make sure that we are we are seeing the Bible and and, and the way J- Jesus lived through a political lens and Robert also talked about you know praise worship um, talks about feelings and uh, talks about uh, faith and other bits and pieces but it can also talk politically um, and it can be a really good tool for us to engage with um, current injustices and situations and you know maybe we're not seeing enough worship songs about those elements and about those themes and it it might be a a welcome change to start to engage with that more in in sung worship. Yeah and I think that challenge extends to the church as a whole you know he shared his thoughts on where the church has gone wrong in addressing racism and I think it's an important challenge that people don't stop at just saying racism is bad and instead actually become anti-racist. I think that was a large part of his criticism of Justin Welby's statement about Windrush earlier this year and I think it's fair to mention he's recently made another statement in the wake of George Floyd's murder and actually I think that this latest statement shares a similar sentiment to what Robert said anyway uh, that the church simply hasn't done enough to combat racism and a lot of the time has actually perpetuated it and as I mentioned on the last podcast racism underpins a lot of the injustice we see in the world today so if we want to see a more just world the church needs to properly address racism not only in word but also in action so that brings us to the end of this episode thank you everyone for listening in we'll be back again on the 6th of july with another episode so if you like what you hear today make sure you hit subscribe and follow us on instagram at we are tier fund 